And as they're making their way out, let me say good morning to you. Uh, Happy New Year to all of you. It's actually really hard to believe that we're uh, here on the final day of 2017. But actually, uh, appropriately, with um, the sermon that I'll be preaching today, we're going to be looking at some final instructions. So final day of 2017, we have some final instructions here this morning. Um, And hopefully these instructions will make sense. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen uh, some of these funny things floating around the internet where you've got these um, instructions for like a a product, but clearly whoever wrote these instructions, uh, English was probably not their first language. Maybe you've seen some of these. Uh, Nothing wrong with different languages, but things get lost in translation, right? So here's a couple of these I looked at recently. Uh, This is one from... Uh, on the blades of a a radio-controlled helicopter. It says, warning, if blade damage, don't be fly. Otherwise, it will create the human body or blame damage. It's good advice. Got to take that under consideration. Uh, We don't want to be fly. We don't want to be cool. Uh, Certainly don't want to be creating any human bodies. But uh, here's one that was on the side of a towel-drying machine in a locker room. It said this, And this evidently was manager's advice. To wrap cloth in the towel, then squeeze it. It will be damageless and quickly. So that's good. We want a damageless towel and we want that quickly. But anyway, so those instructions, just a little bit silly there. Uh, Might be a little bit hard to understand. Hopefully these instructions that uh, we'll talk about today won't be so hard to understand as we move from 2017 into the new year, 2018. Hopefully they'll make a little bit more sense. We are going to be finishing up our sermon series here that we started back in June, uh, working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at the final instructions that the Apostle Paul gives there to that young church, the Thessalonian church. And we can think of them as final instructions for us uh, as well as we move from 2017 into the new year ahead. Um, Now remember that Paul... Um, has been concerned throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, with the fact that Jesus is coming back someday and he wants this church to be ready. He wants them to prepare for that day, to be ready for that day. He wants them to persevere, to grow in Christ-likeness. He wants them to keep doing, to keep growing in what they've already been doing uh, to to some degree and, and really for the most part, keep growing in these various ways or these various things that Jesus asks asks of them so that they would be ready for Jesus to come back. And in his final instructions here that we're going to look at, Paul mostly focuses in on life together as a church community. Life together. And this is going to apply to us today every bit as as much as it did uh, to them. Um, How should we relate to our church leaders? How should we relate to one another? And What is God's will for us in any circumstance, especially uh, as it relates to life together as a church family? Okay, I think Paul hits on those things in this section we'll look at, and so we'll focus in on that uh, for the sermon this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to be, we'll read from there in just a second. I want to pray first, but we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 down to the end of the book. And then we will be done with 1 Thessalonians. But please pray with me uh, here to start. 
Uh, Lord, I just want to say thank you for an opportunity to be gathered together here this morning again. And I simply want to ask that you would help us, help us to hear from you, help us to hear your voice this morning. Help us to hear the voice of our shepherd Jesus uh, as we're gathered now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and following. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read uh, to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Okay, so again, I think Paul focuses in here mainly on ways to live together um, as a church community, ways to relate to our church leaders, ways to relate to one another, and through all of that, God's will for us in any circumstance, okay? So we'll look at those things. First of all, relating to church leaders. We see that in verses 12 to 13, I think. Paul is referring to the church's elders here in these verses, I think. So here, you can read those again, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So be at peace, church body, church leaders, at peace with each other. And really all I want to say or the the point that that I want to make here or what I want to point out here is just to notice why Paul says that we should respect our elders. Why should we do that? Why should we respect our elders? Respect their meaning, um, know the value of them or appreciate them. We could even maybe translate that. Um, Why should we do that? And he says that in verse 13. He says it is because of their work. We should respect and esteem our elders in the church because of their work. And mainly, an elder's work is to watch over the church like a shepherd watches over his sheep. Okay, so thinking of our church here, we have six elders. elders on our elder council. There's six of us, and our aim is to watch over. It is to uh, provide for, to protect the spiritual health of our church. And, and Paul mentions here elders admonishing you in verse 12. In other words, we want to instruct you, or we want to caution you, or warn you, as that might be needed, for your spiritual well-being. That, that's an elder's task, and that's why we want to respect um, our elders, esteem our elders. And so, uh, just briefly here, just to say, don't respect and esteem us um, as elders uh, because of our personality, 
necessarily, uh, not because of our background, not because of our education, not because of our credentials, not because of our experiences, uh, or any number of other reasons why we could show respect. But Paul says, respect and esteem our elders because of the ministry work that we do. That shepherding the flock, that caring for the flock, that instructing the flock. And these instructions here are for us elders, uh, the six of us, Every bit as much as they are for the whole church. These are for us too. Um, in in verse, Paul, uh, verse 12, Paul says that the elders labor among you. Okay, so elders are not sort of coming in from the outside. We're not lobbing in uh, care bombs or, or warning and instruction bombs. But we're in the mix. We're members of the church too. Uh, we're in the mix with the rest of the church body, thankfully, and, and for our own souls. For the, our own spiritual health, we need caution, we need instruction, we need care every bit as much as everybody else. And actually, that is a good segue into the next area that Paul addresses here, uh, and that is relating to one another in the church. So he touches on relating to our leaders in the church, and now he touches on relating to one another. I think we can see that um, in in two parts of this passage, we see it in verses 14 to 15. Those couple of verses there have to do with serving one another in the church, especially uh, those who might be troubled for some reason. And then we see it also in verses 19 to 22. 19 to 22, those verses have to do with the Holy Spirit working through us to serve one another in the church. Okay, so look at, looking at verses uh, 14 to 15 here first. You can read those verses again. And we urge you, brothers, Paul says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So these are really good verses, I think, uh, related to the idea of what some would call every member ministry. Every member ministry. In other words... Uh, it's not only the elder's responsibility to care for the health, the spiritual health of the church, but every member also has the responsibility to care for the church. Um, as elders, we might lead the way. Uh, we might lead the way in that, but every member carries the responsibility to care for uh, the, the spiritual health, to, to instruct one another, to care for one another in the church. It's not just the elder's job uh, to do that. Maybe... Uh, think of a football team. Maybe this is a silly example, but think of a football team uh, going down the field. That quarterback pretty clearly is the leader of that team as he's moving down the field, but he's also just one of the 11 men that are on that field on the team at that time. So, and everybody on the team's got to do their part for this thing to succeed, right? So this is every member ministry. We are in it together. And uh, in verses 14 to 15 here, I think we see that. Paul is talking here not just to the leaders, but he's talking to all of us in the congregation. This is uh, all of us, he says, brothers he's talking to. Or we could say brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, always seek to do good to one another. And, and the main thing that I want to point out here with these verses, I just want to encourage us to, to care for one another um, according to our need. 
or, or, um, or as Ephesians 4 might say, minister to one another such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace. I want us to care for one another in such a way that it fits the occasion and it gives grace. And I say that because you, you notice three, three different circumstances for people here and three different kinds of ministry. So in verse 14, some are what Paul calls idle, some are faint-hearted, others are weak. And in each case, he calls for sort of a different ministry response. So for the idle, he says they need admonishment. Uh, for the faint-hearted, they need encouragement. And for the weak, they need help. And all of them need patience. And the aim for all that ministry is their good. So ministry that fits the occasion. Ministry that meets the need. All with patience and all for a person's good. Um, so the idle person, who is that? Well, uh, idle is maybe not the best translation for that. Um, this person is not idle in the sense that they're, they're, they're lazy or they're not doing anything, but it's more that they're unruly or they're undisciplined. Um, they might actually be very busy, but they're being busy about the wrong things. Um, essentially, uh, the idle person is disobedient to Jesus, and he's obstinate about that. So this idle person is unwilling. He's unwilling to do what Jesus is calling, uh, calling us to do. So, so if we might fall into a pattern of disobedience, if we might fall into a pattern of sin, and maybe we get obstinate about doing the right thing, well, then we need to be admonished. We need to be warned we need to be rebuked, we might say. We need to be corrected, whether that's uh, particular belief, beliefs that we have that are off base, or particular behavior that is off base. And in that case, we don't need encouragement. We don't need help. The idle person does not need to be encouraged, um, admonished, warning, corrective instruction. That's what um, Paul is calling for here for those who are idle. If we want to encourage the idle person, that might actually uh, create more damage. Um, but for the faint-hearted person, a different situation. The faint-hearted, who are they? They are those who are discouraged for some reason. They're discouraged. They're flagging in motivation. The, 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 no wind in their sails, so to speak. Some reason, for some reason or another, They're having trouble really getting motivated for what they know to be good. They're not obstinate. They're not not hard-hearted. They want to do the right thing. But for some reason, they're just discouraged. For some reason. And maybe because of that, they're a little bit timid. So maybe they're sad. Maybe they're grieving. Maybe they've been betrayed. And that's taken the wind out of their sails. Maybe they've been criticized. Maybe they've failed at something yet again, and they're feeling the weight of that. Uh, Maybe they're struggling because uh, of guilt um, with sin. They're just having trouble really believing that God could be so gracious to forgive them in Jesus. So so if if that's you, if that's me... If, if this is any of us faint-hearted, flagging in our motivation, discouraged for some reason, we need encouragement. We don't need somebody to admonish us. We don't need to be rebuked, right? To be admonished in that condition would crush us. We don't need that. We need to be encouraged. We need to be comforted. We need to be consoled. 
We need to be gently spurred on to believe the right thing and to do the right thing. This is what encouragement does. It consoles and it gently spurs on, gently spurs on, but it does spur on uh, to, do, to believe the right thing and to do the right thing. And then for the weak, Paul, Paul calls them uh, the weak here. The weak are those who, who, for some reason, they really need help to do what Jesus calls them to do, whatever uh, the situation might be. Um, it, 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 there, there might be some overlap here with the idea of a, a faint-hearted person, uh, um, spiritual, emotional uh, difficulty. I think probably Paul has more in mind physical weakness in this particular case. So for some reason, they are physically limited. Uh, some disability of some sort, maybe some economic uh, stress. It could be a number of things. But, the, but, but the, the weak here are very willing to follow Jesus wherever Jesus might direct, but for some reason they are limited in their ability to be able to do that. And, then, and so in this case, Paul says here, every member ministry, he calls us to help those who are weak. So in other words, they're, they're lacking something, assist them, provide what is lacking, connect with them, find out what's needed, and work to supply that for them. That would be helping the weak. And, and in all cases, notice, Paul says, be patient with them all. So, so no matter where uh, we are at one another, whether we're uh, idle or faint-hearted or, or weak, whatever the case, whether we're admonishing one another or we're encouraging one another or we're helping one another, always do that with patience. God is patient with us. Let's be patient with one another. Um, God is so patient with us. Let's be so patient with one another. And then keep in mind always the aim of that. Why would we even enter into caring for one another like this? Verse 15, it's for our good. This, we always seek to do good to one another. This is why we reach out to uh, minister to one another. Uh, this is what we want for one another. Uh, uh, this is what motivates us. We want one another's good. And, and we know that ultimately the, the very best good for any of us is that we would be at peace with God in Christ and we would be following him faithfully, trusting him in the many directions that he uh, might, might call us. So, so every member ministry, this is, excuse me, this is ministry that fits the occasion. So practically for us here, uh, I would just say we need to, we need to connect with one, or, one another well enough to know one another well enough to know where we're at, to, to, know, to know what we need so we know uh, what's appropriate in, in the given situation. Admonish those who are able but unwilling. Encourage those who are willing but discouraged. And we help those who are willing also, but they're unable for some reason. Every member ministry. And uh, there's more here to this. Uh, more on this life together as a church family and ministering to one another. Um, if you look down to verses 19 and following, 19 to 22. We can read from there again. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So in other words, 
ministering to one another here, make room for the Holy Spirit to work among us. Make room for the Holy Spirit to actually uh, uh, to help us encourage and help us help each other uh, in, in the pursuit of the spiritual health in our life together. And one means of God's grace through which the Holy Spirit will work through us is the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. And we can quench the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can, we can stifle the Holy Spirit if we despise prophecies that people might offer uh, to us. Now, the idea of prophecy here, we don't talk about it a lot uh, in, in this church. We have said that we are uh, open but cautious about the spiritual gifts, and I think functionally we're more open but totally suspicious. And we don't give the room for the Spirit to uh, work much. Um, but the idea of prophecy, I realize it can sound a little weird because we don't talk about it a lot. Um, it can maybe be a little, little bit uncomfortable for some of us. But here, here's what we're talking about. Um, what is this prophecy? I agree with Frank Thielman. He says this. Um, he says, Prophecy refers generally to speech that reports something that God spontaneously brings to mind or reveals to the speaker, but which is spoken in merely human words, not words of God. Therefore, it can have mistakes and must be tested and evaluated. Or Sam Storm says this. He says that the gift of prophecy is the human report of divine revelation. In other words, it's the, it's the Holy Spirit bringing something spontaneously to our minds that we wouldn't otherwise have thought. And, 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 and with that in mind, the purpose of that is that the Holy Spirit would use that for the sake of building up the church, for encouraging the church, for comforting the church. That's, that's what Paul actually says over in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, says, uh, Paul says there that the one who prophesies speaks to uh, people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, and for their consolation. Okay, so, so that could mean a, a number of things for us as a church body. That could mean having a, a sudden sense of how maybe a, a particular Bible passage would apply to somebody and, and, uh, and there's context and sharing that with them. Uh, it, it could mean having sort of a spontaneous, keen insight into uh, a person's situation maybe as you're counseling them through a difficult time or they have a difficult question. Um, it could be that sort of out of, seemingly out of nowhere, you have the perfect word to give to somebody who is grieving. grieving. Just a timely word for somebody who's, who's having a, a rough go of things. It could be, take many different forms for us, um, but the purpose will be to build up and encourage and comfort. Now, just a word here quick. What I don't mean by this idea of prophecy, I don't mean that somehow this revelation that we might spontaneously get is on the same level of authority as the Bible. I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form. Don't think of revelation in the same sort of way. Um, so like with the Bible, we can say, God says this, dot, 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 or, you know, thus saith the Lord in Old English. We can say that with the Bible. With this kind of prophecy that we're talking about, we could say, I think the Lord says this, how does that land on you? Let's test that. Does this sound helpful? That's the kind of thing that we're talking about with this kind of prophecy. And Paul says to do that. Test everything, he says. Um, uh, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from what's evil. 
In other words, I think what he's saying there is that we test any prophecy that a person might give. We don't just uh, reject it out of hand because it makes us feel uncomfortable and it's weird or, or whatever. But we don't despise it, but we test it. And if it's good, if it passes the test, we grab onto that thing and we get encouragement. If it fails the test, we reject it. We let it go. Excuse me, we, re- we let it go. Um, my wife actually had an experience in a previous church of hers uh, that she was a part of where supposedly somebody prophesied over her uh, saying that she was going to marry somebody else. Uh, and um, and uh, so point being, we need to test these things. They might not be right, and I'm really glad that this person was wrong. They were dead wrong. Um, so that's a good prophecy to be rejected. Um, but the point is, it, we can have mistakes. These are human This is God working through humans who are fallible, and so we need to evaluate these things. Otherwise, man, it can go sideways really quickly. So it begs the question, then, how do we test these prophecies? How do we do this? Um, Well, I would say that there are at least two criteria, and uh, there's probably more. Actually, I would say there are more, but I'm just going to highlight two. Uh, And I think these are foundational criteria. Number one, Scripture. Scripture. Does the prophecy accord with Scripture. In other words, does it, does it seem to make sense like in light of Scripture? Does it seem to flow with the grain of Scripture? Or does it undermine Scripture in some way? Or does it even contradict Scripture somehow? Um, so uh, uh, I think Paul actually hints at that, hints at this with the church in Thessalonica in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, in the context over there, um, uh, I think there's some people there who were, they were shaken, they were alarmed because somebody was giving some false prophecies about the uh, timing of Jesus coming back, about the circumstances surrounding Jesus coming back, and this has kind of shaken some people up. And Paul responds by saying this in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the, to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Okay, in other words, the standard and the authority is not a person's potential prophecy, okay? Um, But it's the apostolic tradition. It's the the, the apostles' teaching. Um, In other words, the Bible, or, you know, more specifically the New Testament, but, uh, but the whole Bible would be included in that. And so first criteria, does the, a, a potential prophecy accord with Scripture? And then a second criteria, t- criteria would be the effect. What's the effect of this supposed prophecy? Does it, what, what does it produce? Does it actually encourage? Does it console? Uh, does it build up in some way? Again, remember the 1 Corinthians 14.3 that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation. So that's the primary purpose of prophecy, at least with regard to uh, one Christian to another Christian in the church body. It is for this upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And so the second criteria, does it do that? Does it, does it build up? Does it uh, console and encourage? And man, if it does, and if it does accord with Scripture... Grab onto that thing. Don't despise it. Don't reject it out of hand, uh, Paul is saying. And, and actually, I, th- I think that prophecy will be a significant means of grace to help us to 
admonish one another and encourage one another and help one another. These things Paul calls us to for the health of the church. The Holy Spirit may very well choose to use prophecy through us to serve one another uh, to those ends. And so I would say, uh, practically for us then, at least for this morning, we should pray. We we should pray that God, uh, uh, actually ask God to give us the gift of prophecy. Ask him to give that to us, and, and, and let's be eager, actually, to exercise that gift as we have opportunity. Um, and I say that because 1 Corinthians 14, 1, Paul says this. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. Isn't that amazing that the Bible would command our desires? Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. And so I wonder, do you, do I earnestly desire to prophesy? Or other spiritual gifts for that matter. Um, I think the Bible says that we should. And so we need to pray uh, to those ends. And so those are some things uh, uh, related to, uh, about relating to our leaders in the church, things related to uh, relating to one another, in the church and ministering to one another. And then finally, looking at verses 16 to 18, we see there some things about what, what is God's will for us through all of this, through all of our relating to leaders, through all of our relating to one another and serving one another. In all circumstances, what's his will? And amazingly, uh, he gives us an answer to that in verses 16 to 18. So look there again, please. Uh, Rejoice always, Paul says. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Man, how is that for a statement in verse 18? <laughs> this is the will of God for, uh, will of God uh, in Christ Jesus for you. That's pretty incredible. I mean, surely you've wondered, what's the will of God, <laughs> you know? What is God's will for me? What is God's will for this church? And amazingly, we get an answer here. Again, rejoice, pray, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, And and that's it. That's God's will for you and me, um, especially as we relate to one another in the church family. Now, that's not the totality of God's will. Uh, The Bible speaks of God's will in other ways uh, throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. But these are some pretty sweeping statements. Always, without ceasing, or we could say continually, in all circumstances, pretty sweeping statement. So what does Paul have in mind here? Um, Well, first of all, uh, rejoice always. Rejoice or express joy, be glad, express joy, and do that always. In other words, in all circumstances, or, or in, in all kinds of circumstances. So whether you're in a good circumstance or you're in a bad circumstance, God's will here. Rejoice. Be glad. Express joy. Now, the joy that Paul has in mind, I think it's important that we grab onto this and we don't misunderstand the kind of happiness he might be talking about here. I don't think this is sort of a, a bubbly um, light-hearted, sort of chipper kind of happiness that, that, that is grounded in any given uh, particular circumstance that we might be in. But it is a deep sense of satisfaction, a deep sense of contentment in the knowledge of God and His 
promises to us. This joy is a deep contentment, knowing that God is good, knowing that God is sovereign, and that because we are loved by God in Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, God will never leave us, and God will never forsake us. This joy is confidence. This joy is confidence in God himself. It's that, that's the joy that's in mind here. And, and, uh, the, the, and so to foster that, to cultivate that in one another. Well, how do we do that? Well, well we, we, we've, we've got to regularly meditate on and be reminded of who God is. Reminded about his character. Reminded about what he's done for us in Jesus and, and who we are because of that. What is our identity because of what God has done for us in Jesus. What he promises for us because of Jesus. In other words, this is the, the gospel of Jesus, the, the reality of the gospel. Um, and so Paul, Paul says it a bit differently over in Philippians. There he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice over in Philippians 4, that he says, writing from prison. And so it's joy in the Lord, not necessarily any given circumstance. Obviously, circumstances rise and fall. Circumstances can be good and bad. But Jesus is constant. Jesus is steady. Jesus is our rock. Always steadfast in his love for us. Always steadfast in his commitment to our good. That is Jesus. And so even in deeply troubling, sorrowful circumstances, um, John Piper says this. He says, what you see is true. But it's not the whole truth or the main truth. I love that line. It's so helpful for me to think about sorrow and joy mixing. Um, The sorrow that you see is true, but it's not the whole truth and it's not the main truth. Yes, we are sorrowful, Piper says. There are countless reasons for our hearts to break. But in them all, we do not cease to rejoice. One of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian life, he says. And he says, we are happy people, but we are not what you might call chipper. There is a plaintive strain in the symphony of our lives. Really well said. Our affections are complex. Man, we can feel a a, a blend of of multiple uh, emotions all at the same time. But a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit for the Christian is joy. Joy is foundational. Other, other emotions might stack up on top of joy, might crowd joy here and there for different reasons at different times, but joy is always. Joy is foundational. Joy is forever because joy flows from the forever. In other words, from our relationship with God in Christ, which is forever and unshakable, and the promises that come with that. So rejoice always, God says. That's God's will for us, even in our grief. And I know that this is way easier said than done. I mean way easier to just spout this off than actually fight for this in our lives. I know that. I know that there has been um, some, some darker times, actually. I know for some of us uh, in the church here, even just during the, the, this Christmas season, these last few months. I know for me, personally, uh, normally, uh, Christmas time for me, for my family, is usually a pretty happy time. It's usually a pretty chipper time, actually, you might say. But man, there's just been a dark cloud over it. Um, 
uh, for, for a few months now. And, and for some, of those, some reasons I think I can put my finger on. Other reasons I don't know that I can put my finger on. There's just sort of a darkness there. And I know we have, Karina and I have been praying for you. We know that there are some of you who have been walking through some difficult times in this Christmas season. I know some of you have tasted death in your family. Some have um, remembered death in your family. Some have been threatened by death uh, in the family. I know this, and we have been praying for you. Life is broken. Life is sad. The specter of death. I've I've known of other circumstances not very far removed from our church body of of cancer and Parkinson's disease and heart, uh, heart attack. All just like in this Christmas season. There's a, it's like the specter of darkness and death. It's, it's broken. It's sad. But verse 16 helps us to know that that's not the whole truth. And it is not the main truth. But we can still look to God here. Even still, God says that we can rejoice in him. Not necessarily the hardness, but in God himself and who he is, and what he's done for us in Jesus, what he promises because of Jesus. Sorrow and joy, one of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian life for sure. You can think of Jesus himself probably uh, uh, the happiest person on the planet, and yet a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So we're joyful, we're not chipper necessarily. Verse 17, pray without ceasing through all of this. Pray without ceasing or pray continually. In other words, it's not, I don't think, Paul saying that we are literally, physically talking to God or listening to God sort of constantly. I mean, we're limited, we're finite, our brains can only do so many things at once. But it is this continual prayerful attitude, this lifestyle of prayer, this, this sense that we are walking continually in the presence of our Father. Uh, 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 especially as we have him inside of us in the Holy Spirit. We have the Lord with us. And so we, we walk in this sense of, of always being in the presence of God, practicing the presence of God, we could say. And then verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Um, we could essentially say the same thing about thanks in all circumstances as we've already said about rejoicing. These two are practically, I mean, they're basically synonymous, really when we dig down to the real meaning of gratitude and the real meaning of joy, it's hard to separate these things. And, and there really is reason for thanks in all circumstances, even in the very hardest circumstances, because of who God is. If God was not who he is, then we'd have problems. But there is reason for thanks because of who God is. Because of who God is and because of what God is doing for us um, in Jesus. So, Romans 8, 28 to 29, a favorite Bible passage for so many people. One of my favorite, one of the most comforting for me. God says there that he works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is working in literally all circumstances, good or bad, to shape our progressive sanctification. That is to to shape our uh, ongoing maturity in Jesus or our our, our growing conformity to look like Jesus. That's sanctification. And God's working to do that in all of our circumstances. 
And, and that's very significant here as we take into consideration all of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, remember that I've said that that, that progressive Maturity in Christ is essentially the main reason why Paul wrote this book. Jesus is coming back, and he wants the Thessalonians to be found ready for that day. He wants them to have persevered and to have grown in Christ uh, and persevered through thick and through thin. And I, and I think that is what the Lord wants for us as well. He wants us to be persevering, to be progressing in our maturity through through. Th- Thin moments of, of vacation and Christmas parties and New Year's Eve parties and through very thick circumstances of persecution or death in the family or sickness or disease. That is God's desire for us, I believe. That's why 1 Thessalonians is in the Bible, I think. It's to encourage us and to spur us on to hold fast to Jesus all the way to the end. And we can see that in how Paul wraps up the letter. If you look very briefly at verses 23 to 24, Paul closes with a prayer here. He closes this out, and, and I think we, we got to hear this as a good word for us uh, as we leave 2017 behind and we move into the new year. Paul prays, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so we can see the aim there, that we would be sanctified completely. In other words, that we would come to look like Jesus. And that we would be blameless. In other words, not, not that we in and of ourselves would sort of be, be perfect, but that we would be clothed in the blamelessness of Jesus. Um, that, that, that insofar as we are united to Jesus by faith, we have his record of blamelessness credited to us. And so then notice the great hope in this in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So, you might remember the famous prayer of Augustine. He prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant what you command. And we have that promise here in verse 24. God commands our sanctification and our blamelessness. And if we are trusting in Jesus for it, then God himself does that for us through Jesus. So, so be ready for Jesus to come back, um, and we will be getting ready for Jesus to come back as we respect our leaders in the church because of their work, and as we care for one another in ways that fit the occasion, and as we embrace the Holy Spirit's work through prophecy, as we rejoice, as we pray, as we give thanks in all circumstances, and as we do and as we don't do all the million other things that Jesus would call us to um, as our Lord, as our Master. And you know, the, uh, or, and as we do that, we know that he who calls you is faithful. And in fact, he will do it. He will do these things. So whatever you're called to, in the new year, whatever we're called to as a church in the new year, if he's calling us to it, he will surely do it. And, and over our lifetime, he will carry you, he will carry us to persevere to the end, all the way to the end. And so hopefully those are instructions that make a little bit more sense than other ones we might think of. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for the chance to be here again. Thank you for the chance to have heard this uh, unpacking of uh, a little bit of First Thessalonians, and I simply pray that you would cause us to grab on to what is good and right and true, and you would help us to embrace um, what you might be speaking to us. Uh, Lord, you are our great shepherd, and you want what's the very best for us and for your glory, and I pray that you would work that um, in us as individuals in this church, work it in us as a church family, um, and help us to shine that, reflect that well uh, in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.